Infirmary Media. People engage in stuff for jeweling decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Jeweling decades. Who culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Jeweling decades. Broadcasting from the Bio Bidet Studios, where water does it better. Greetings, pals and gals, children of all ages. Welcome back to another episode of Dueling Decades, the adult audio retro game show where the 80s and 90s do battle because it's your history. We just fight for it. Let's take a look at this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for as we return to tag team action here on the show. In the 80s corner, fighting with May of 1981 is the man that, along with myself, make up the team known the world over as the Mamelukes. It's the Man Crush. Hello. The only dwarf on the panel. (laughs) (laughs) And this week, our opponents are no strangers to us. It's the team that is so 90s, they reek of awesomeness. Coming armed with May of 1991. Go ahead, Mike. Oh. I'm Mike Ranger, representing May of 1991. I've been playing Sonic the Hedgehog all day, and I'm knee-deep in sun chips. <laughs> <laughs> and as always here on Dueling Decades, we need someone to serve as our retro referee. He's back, lads and ladies. The Lord of Justice himself, the Right Honorable Judge John Cross. That's right, I am the Lord. Buy my t-shirt, you nobbers. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get the other team name? Oh, we're the after-school special. After-school special, great. Sorry. It's been a long time for him. (laughs) Well, you change names sometimes. You've been lots of different names. That's so people can forget that we lose all the fucking time. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. A judge's coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. The winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. Now, duelers, get ready to talk to the hand as we play some... Dueling Decades. All right. Are we all ready for the flip? Let's mm-hmm. do it. Uh, today's flip, this month's flip, as uh, over on the After Movie Diner, it is sleazy spader time. Uh, I have the VHS of Slow Burn, starring James Spader with a very sleazy mustache and Mini Driver. Do we want to go minis or backies? Uh, what are we thinking? Mama Luke's? I'm going to say he banged her in the backy, so yeah, yeah. got to go let's back. Go, yeah. Let's go back. It is described as a sizzling thriller about the search and struggle to claim a fortune in stolen diamonds. So we are going backies. Mama Luke's has picked backies. All right, let's see. We're going to toss it right now. Boom. It's backies. Ooh, the mm. Mama Luke's go first. Uh, Mark, what do you say we start with? music yeah we can start there you want to start us off 
Sure. Sure, let's begin this. So May 1st, 1981, we get the classic self-titled debut album from Punk's The Adolescence. The album contains 16 gritty, fast-paced 80s hardcore punk songs in all of 37 minutes. And in that 37 minutes, they bash the government, they shit-talk the cops, they talk about homeless kids, and they talk about their experiences living in Orange County. If seriously though, if you're a fan of punk, I know it doesn't sound like a huge album. This is a must for your collection. This album is the definition of '80s hardcore punk. It's an essential to any collection because real punk people collect, you know, old punk. You don't listen to this shit on Spotify, so you go out and buy it, and you probably do. But these guys—they're unique. They're talented. Obviously, it's controversial. Um, And I realize that most punk is only three chords. But I promise you that Rick Agnew shreds on this album. Popular songs in this album, uh, Amoeba, you might have heard of. Amoeba, Amoeba. Nobody? Well, when you sing it like that. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> it also has other gems on there. There's Kids of the Black Hole, which is awesome. Uh, Creatures, for example, is another good one. It doesn't exactly have the gaudy numbers that we would see from a pop album when we do this. But the adolescents were probably the first of that second wave of punk bands that were widely u.s distributed uh i think them and maybe the dead kennedys were probably the biggest at the time for that one thing because dead kennedys had fresh fruit and rotten vegetables in 80 i think so those two bands kind of hit it off for the punk scene in 1981 so this one was uh, may 1st 1981 all right you guys ready for my pick you ready i i'm ready You guys know waiting is the hardest part. Well, so says Tom Petty as Hard Promises is released. His fourth studio album by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, May 5th, 1981, giving us the single The Waiting. And being certified platinum in the United States and Canada, the album's release was delayed, however, uh, while Petty and MCA Records had a dispute over the price of the album. The album was originally slated to be the next MCA release with the new list price of $9.98. The so-called superstar pricing was a dollar more than the usual list of eight ninety-eight. Petty went to battle for his fans. He didn't want them to pay the extra dollar. Uh, he even went as far as to consider non-delivery of the album or just naming the album eight ninety-eight. But uh, eventually, MCA decided against it. But uh, during the recording of the album, John Lennon was actually scheduled to be in the same studio at the same time Petty was. Petty, huge Beatles fan, lifelong fan, very excited to meet John Lennon. Unfortunately, John Lennon never made that scheduled appointment as he was shot just a few days before. Uh, So for the original pressing of the album, they paid tribute to John Lennon by etching We Love You, JL, in the run-out dead wax on the early U.S. and Canadian pressings. So if you have a copy of that album, or if you're in, you know, Goodwill or wherever, and you find a copy of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Hard Promises, take a look at the album etching. If it's a first print, you're going to see that tribute to John Lennon on there. So that's my pick for music. Man Crush, can I just uh, get a confirmation on where you are finding the May 1st release date for the Adolescents? I use Discogs. Don't use Wikipedia, because... Okay. Wikipedia. Is no, I'm trash. just not seeing a May release on any of the uh, uh, things. Yeah, that I'm for seeing, albums, I was uh, to Discogs is the place to go. Okay, then. Fair enough. I will double check it there. I just was double checking. No, I'm glad you did. Sure. 
because uh, you'll see this comes up all the time when we do the research for this stuff. If you just do a quick Google search, the dates are usually rounded off or they're just right in, they're or they're just wrong. And then you go back and find it in a newspaper or something and you know that's the real date. So it's it's very interesting though, because in April, if it is to be believed, there was an album uh released uh by the exploited called Punk's Not Dead. So I guess the adolescence proves that uh mere weeks later. <laughs> they did. And then some. It's a classic album, man. Like even if you're not a fan of punk, Facts. I would say go on there, check out Kids of the Black Hole. It's I like a bit of but punk. But it's a five minute song. It's, it a, it's so it's punk, but it's like the antithesis and antithesis. How the fuck the antithesis of Yeah, of you punk. said it right. <laughs> and it's five minutes and like 30 seconds or something like that. But it's a good song. Check that out. Nice. Will do. All right. Over to after school special. Mike, would you like to do the honors? Sure. On uh, May 24th of 91, we saw the Guns N' Roses kick off the Use Your Illusion tour. This was not only the band's longest tour, but one of the longest in music history, with 194 shows in 27 countries. The tour was a promotional tour for the albums Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. The tour marked a high point for the band's popularity, with over 7 million fans attending. The tour is remembered for countless riots, late starts and cancellations, as well as various rants by the always well-behaved Axl Rose. When the Use Your Illusion tour finally ended in Buenos Aires on July 17, 1993, it marked the last time Slash performed with the band until 2011. I guess nothing lasts forever, and we both know hearts can change. <laughs> was that the tour with the, uh, was it in Missouri? Or no, it was in St. Louis or something, right? Where they had like that big yeah. uh, riot. It's like a riot, yeah, he yeah. left. He just, well, that's why they, yeah. they rioted, right? Because he did one song and he was like, fuck this and left and they went crazy or some shit. Yeah, he lost his temper. What a guy. Things got a little out of hand. They're still rebuilding down in St. Louis, actually. <laughs> because of that. <laughs> Monumental. So, yeah, that's my pick. The uh, beginning of the uh, Use Your Illusion tour. All right, Bo Beecraft, over to you for your pick. We're going to go to the debut album from one of the biggest alternative acts of the 90s, arguably. Uh, released May 28, 1991. The debut record from the Smashing Pumpkins, Gish. Mm. Uh, featured three singles, Siva, Rhinoceros, and I Am One. Uh, until the release of the Offspring's 94 record, Smash, Gish was actually the highest-selling independently released record of all time, uh, which is a pretty big feat considering they didn't have any major label backing for that. Yeah. I mean, not the most memorable Smashing Pumpkins album, but still a uh, pretty good out-of-the-gate effort, uh, reaching number six on the U.S. Billboard Heat Seekers album chart. Didn't produce any top ten hits, but the album did go on to be certified platinum, uh, with sales over 1 million copies. Wow, solid May pick. 28th, yeah, 91, Gish from the Smashing Pumpkins. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't their best album, like you said, but, you know, there was a solid foundation there, and you could tell that, you know, there was something there, even from that early on album. Yeah, and here we are, you know, 30 years later, I'm pissing next to the lead singer in a fucking urinal in <laughs> Moscow Mills, Missouri. He took a Gish <laughs> right next to him. And talking to him <laughs> while you were pissing as well. Right. Nothing awkward about that. <laughs> I mean, I, do you have the actual um, sales numbers for the beginning of that? Because obviously it sold a million by now, but. It actually was re-released later on, uh, which I think they factored that into the number. I think it was re-released in uh, 2011. Uh, yeah, and I don't know late. if they count the 
re-release with that or not well would put in the uh what 20th anniversary well, of it yeah that would make sense it's still that's a huge yeah. feat though considering 1991 there's really no internet there's no other way to right distribute so it's uh, pretty big it was actually uh i read that college radio stations were a lot of the reason that it it gained so much popularity or i guess really kind of lack thereof but it did gain popularity because of uh being an alternative you know college radio station kind of hot hot play oh yeah we had it in heavy rotation yeah, I remember when Siamese Dream came out, like they they made it like the band was around forever because everybody knew about them. And it was probably because of that. So that's pretty cool. So between the two, 1981 and 1991, let's just have a quick glance over the maze of those particular years. Not much happening in 1981. Uh, there's a few notable exceptions. I mean, there's Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, the Frank Zappa album. Uh, Grace Jones released Nightclubbing. Uh, which I'm sure is everyone's favorite. Um, in fact, Frank, Frank Zappa also releases uh, uh, Tinseltown Rebellion that month as well. So he has a busy month. Um, but apart from that, not much. There's releases from UB40, Echo and the Bunnymen, um, and Jean-Michel Jarre, everyone's favorite uh, French uh, keyboard player and uh, player of the laser um, but, uh, in 1981, May, uh, really, I do think that, uh, the Mamelukes picked two of the most interesting albums and, uh, you know, obviously one incredibly well known, uh, and then the other one sort of, uh, a very unique cult album, um, out of that month, not much else to play with. Uh, however, May, 1991, uh, my goodness, look at some of the stuff that came out. We had Pop Life by Bananarama. Not a day goes by when I don't listen to that classic uh we <laughs> it's had, 12 uh, remixes we had, of cruel summer <laughs> yeah <it's, laughs> um it yeah it's it's just uh constant songs about robert de niro that nobody wanted um <laughs> and then uh you had orchestral maneuvers in the dark uh with their album sugar tax uh that's one of my favorites i just like the idea of an orchestra trying to tiptoe through a bedroom quietly um and uh elvis costello but really honestly you have og original gangster by ice t uh which is a great one you have uh sailing the seas of cheese by primus who doesn't love that you have spellbound by paula abdul uh you have the unplugged album by paul mccartney there's tons coming out uh and of course you have our two picks gish and the guns and roses user illusion tour um i i have to uh, i have to after all of this listen uh, I'm a big fan of what the Mamelukes picked, both Punk and Tom Petty. Uh, but I'm going to side with 1991. I don't think you can really beat... I mean, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 and the tour that followed was really all I remember anyone talking about that year in terms of music. I remember being in, in uh, early in high school at that point and uh, everyone just going on and on and on about Guns N' Roses ad nauseum. It was just such a... Uh, uh mammoth kind of uh double album and tour and everything at that point it was sort of very um pop culture relevant uh less so about gish and the smashing pumpkins but i do feel like the smashing pumpkins as one of those bands that kind of define the 90s um and you said this was their debut album um so obviously uh in terms of a band coming on the scene early in the decade and then going on to uh more or less throughout the decade kind of define it in it in its own way then uh it's obviously an important debut it went platinum 
Uh, it sold a million copies. So I'm going to side uh, this round uh, with uh, the after school special and 1991. I can see that. No arguments here. That's a, that's a tough one to beat. All right, after school special, you take control of the board. What category are we going to next? Mm, that's a doozy. Mike, you got any suggestions here? Oh, I think we should go with uh, hot products. <laughs> Let's do it. Get it out of the goddamn way. All right, you, uh, you want to take it? Sure. Got a hot product for a negative reason this time. May 29, 1991, the Nyland Corporation, just up the road from me in Rockford, Illinois, is recalling approximately 5,800 units of the Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends push-along train and the Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends shape sorter pull toy after they failed to comply with the Federal Hazardous Substances Act. The gray pegs on the side rods and the red latch on the back of the engine doors separated from both the push-along train and the shape sorter pull toy, while the black hitches connecting two cars separated from the push-along train. All of these pieces are small parts that could present potential choking or aspiration hazards for young children, and it marked a dark, dark day for Shining Time Station. <laughs> Was your time period so bad that you had to start with a negative fucking product? Every time. Holy shit. Trying something new in the 90s, I see. All right. I can't wait That's to right. what Mike has. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on May 31st, 1991, in Japan, Sega, partner, uh, Sega partnered with IBM to release the Sega Terra Drive, an IBM PC-compatible system with an integrated Mega Drive or Genesis for those of us in America. The system allowed for Sega Genesis games to be played at the same time as the PC section was being used. The unit was Sega branded and had three different models, which if purchased with the monitor that was sold separately, would cost you a little over $2,000. Uh, the product ended up failing, but if you look at Sega's history, they have a track record for running with innovation and re releasing products that are often ahead of their time. But as former Sega, Amer Sega of America CEO Tom Kalinske has said with products like the Sega CD, that Sega had to make these jumps to figure out how to program for the future. The Genesis was the first 16-bit system. The Sega CD was the second CD-based system. The Sega Channel is years ahead of online gaming, and the Dreamcast was the first system to come with a built-in modem. The Sega Pico was a tablet-like device released in 93. So if you can look at the Sega Terra Drive as like a precursor to what Microsoft is doing now with Windows. So yeah. Wait, what are they doing with Windows? <laughs> I got it. <laughs> lost me. Well, it, right now uh, Xbox Live is being integrated with Windows. So you can uh, gotcha. okay. purchase a game for your Xbox and it, you can play it on your PC. <laughs> Crossplay. Cross yes. Got it. Not cross-play. That's people who show up to uh, my apartment front door dressed like me, and I have to hit them with a broom. That's why I'm growing the beard out, man. Yeah, go away. <laughs> Leave me alone. Unless you bought my t-shirt, in which case, please. Come on, a swinger party yeah. at the cross-play. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, half the room comes dressed as Judge John Cross t-shirt. The other half just comes in the regular, like, duty t-shirt, and then it's a, a game of swapping t-shirts all night. It's fun. <laughs> It's like a key party, but more comfortable. Sounds dirty. Lots of nipples, not much else. <laughs> That's still pretty gross because I'm sure they're hairy. Yes. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> Confirmed. Confirmed. All right, Mark, you want to start this one out? Because I'm even interested to see what you picked because I don't even know. All right. So let's go to Hot Products, May 1981. You know, sometimes on this show, you got to dig. 
and you really got to dig. So for my hot product, just follow me on this. We're going to the May 1981 issue of Omni Magazine, which is a science fiction and technology magazine. Had a great uh, story on it from Ray Bradbury, always contributing to Omni Magazine. But if you dig a little bit deeper into the issue, you find that there was a gentleman who published his very first story in that very issue. A Mr. William Gibson published his very first story called Johnny Mnemonic in the Omni Whoa. May 1981 issue. I mean, William Gibson, if you're familiar with science fiction, I mean, he is credited as being one of the pioneers of the science fiction movement. Uh, he basically created cyberpunk. He coined the term cyberspace so only a few years later. But his whole career basically started May 1981 as he publishes his first story, Johnny Mnemonic, in Omni Magazine, which, if you're familiar with the title, it is what went on to inspire the 1995 Keanu Reeves film. That wasn't Al Gore? That no, no, no. Came up with... No, no. Al Gore did not in invent cyberspace. But <laughs> and, and should we and and should we really be mentioning it as the inspiration for the Keanu Reeves film Johnny? Well, it, it, it's based off the <laughs> short story. Is that a detriment or a positive? No, I understand. Is that a detriment well, <laughs> to it though? or uh... it shows relevancy because this is an '81 and the movie they didn't even think of making that movie till the mid '90s, right? You know that almost starred Val Kilmer. Yeah, that would have been better. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it depends. <laughs> if it's Tombstone Val Kilmer, real, real uh, genius Val Kilmer, sure. If it's Batman Val Kilmer, then no. True that. That was a good one, Mark. All right, man, Crush. What I'm do you got? Shocked. All right. Um, May nineteen eighty one. You had uh, Bob Guernsey, Hayes Knoll, and Charles Gaines, who they purchased a couple of Nelspot 007 markers. And before you ask, the Nelspot marker was actually a gun that was created by Charles Nelson and Daisy, uh, Daisy that makes the air rifle, uh, in order to mark trees or stray cattle from a distance. And of course, I'm talking about with paint, not with bullets. That said, the next time you're, you're out playing paintball or something, at least you know why they're calling your gun a marker, and you'll probably be the only one out there that knows why, and that's why right there. But for fans of the movie Gotcha, the Nelspot 007 is the same thing that Anthony Edwards is using in that. And this one's for you, John Cross. In Tough Turf, James Spader is also using a Nelspot 007 when he shoots. Uh, what did he shoot in the room again? Was it mice? Dartboard, wasn't it? Yeah. It oh, it was a picture on the wall. Yeah. It starts yeah. off as his dartboard in his apartment at the beginning. Yeah. 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 Or his parents' house, rather, sorry. Yeah. Right, because he's still in high school. Anyways, yeah. uh, back to uh, May of 81. So that Nelspot... So it's a, paint, it's a paintball gun, then? It is a paintball gun. So the Nelspot 007, but it was used for those purposes at that point. It was only made to mark trees and stray cattle. That's why they made that Nelspot. And then, like everything else, we eventually said, dude, we should shoot each other with this. Exactly. So... <laughs> That, that was made in 1972, but anyways, May 1981. So those three guys I mentioned before, they went out and they purchased the Nelspot 007 marker, and then they subsequently tested it on its first human, Shelby Gaines, which was Charles Gaines's son, who said it didn't hurt that bad. And then within a few days of this, these guys started playing paintball in the woods, shooting each other, 
And then they went on to plan the first ever paintball match that would take place the next month. So it's not the first ever paintball gun, but it's the it's the gun that would inspire the first it's really, paintball game. It's yeah, it's it's not the hot product is paintball in general because okay. that's what these guys created it as a game. Because at that point, it was just used as an actual device to shoot trees. The uh, U.S. Forestry Department paid Charles Nelson to come up with the whole idea for it. Basically, it was to shoot trees that were too far, like across rivers or whatever, and mark them. Like if a tree was dying or whatever, they'd mark it with a certain color of paint. So that's right. what it was used so for. So before this date, no one had ever used paintball game paintball right. guns recreationally. So from here, these guys created leagues, and it, it went on and on. Uh, today, about 3 million active U.S. paintball players in the United States. Yeah. Little did they know that podgy middle-aged businessmen yeah. would be yeah, going no, as team-building exercises. Such an interesting <laughs> story when I found it that I had to dig deep into this thing. But if you were to, about 10 years ago, the paintball industry was actually twice the size. But because of uh, like airsoft leagues and stuff, which is much cheaper to run, it kind of split down the middle. But there's still 3 million people playing. It's $150 million industry. But and, and, and also, we keep killing each other with real guns. So, yeah, so it doesn't fuck it. actually. Go use paint. Yeah. yeah, right. Who needs paint? Paint is like a girl's game. Let's just load it up with real bullets and have done with it. Well, just right. don't wear a mask. Yeah, right. No, you just up the ante. The people. The reason nobody shoots anybody with paintball is there's no consequences. <laughs> so, what if <laughs> right. we just make paint that never comes off? Indeed. Nobody gets killed, and there's a consequence. And everyone's unique. That's right. <laughs> We'd all look like the seven train. It'd be great. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love I love a country that'll ban a kinder egg and a lawn dart, but guns have at it. Anyway. So that's what we got, May nineteen eighty one. All right. Look at that collection of hot products. Normally I would say are we saying hot products is normally the weakest round? Oh, uh, for Christ's sake, yes. I would yeah. say it's the, I, I think it's the most interesting round. It's definitely the hardest to find things. Yeah. yeah. It's also the hardest to judge, I think, in a way, because I can't really bring a lot of my like personal. I don't buy a lot of like products in that regard. You're telling me um, you didn't have the Thomas the Tank and Friends shape sorter pull toy? No, I didn't. Everybody <laughs> a in lot the dog had that. It was the Astro Lounge from Smash Mouth of toys. Yeah, no, I, I didn't have a lot of Thomas the Tank Engine toys by the time I was in my teens. No, that wasn't a thing. Um, for what a me, lame-o. What a Bo, lame-o. Everybody had Bo had one of those things when he was a little tyke. He used to chew on it for hours. I yeah, still have it had, sitting over there in the corner. We had Ringo Starr narrating the TV show is what we had. Um, oh. So we had Ringo Starr saying, oh, look, Thomas is there with the fat controller. <laughs> um, so that was always fun. He's going uh, so, to start docking. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't suppose we're allowed to call him the fat controller anymore. <laughs> But can Ringo Starr really say anything that sounds downer or depressing? Kind of always puts an upspin on everything. Everything has a a slight positive tone to it. So. Uh, except in Hard Day's Night, he kind of gets a bit mumbly and yeah. depressing in the middle of a Hard Day's Night when they do the whole like loner goes off by himself thing. Yeah, that was the drugs talking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. In 1964, I mean, maybe amphetamines, but they hadn't really got onto. <laughs> They, they'd taken a lot of speed in Germany, but they hadn't done uh, pot yet. I think that was coming up, like, Rubber Soul era was, like, the first pot album. Yeah, that's when they got good. <laughs> <laughs> that's when they met Dylan, and Dylan was like, oh, man, you haven't done this yet? Come on. <laughs> um, 
Uh, okay, so let, yeah, let's let's judge this round. My goodness, this is difficult because uh, obviously William Gibson, uh, a titan in twentieth uh, uh, and twenty first century sci fi, um, getting his start in Omni Magazine. That's a, I mean, that's fascinating unto itself. Like that should win points just for being fascinating that you were able to find that. Um, the uh, the paintball gun, paintball. It's obviously a, a big deal. Um, do we know? It, how soon after May of 1981 the first paintball game actually took place? June. The next month. They planned the it. The very next month. Okay. Yep. All right. All right. So they planned it in May. Okay. They, cool. they had 12 people. Nine nice. nine others and, and, of course, them three. But not his son, I don't think. I like that the first person they shot was one of their sons. Yeah. They were just like, oh, right, boy, come over here. <laughs> Did that hurt? <laughs> yep. They had 12 people and 47 injuries. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I never got shot by a nail spot 007, but like in Gotcha, it didn't look like it hurt either. So maybe it was pretty weak compared to like the paintballs in the early 2000s. Those fuckers stung. I have to say that I do like Man Crush you trying to appeal to my movie loving by being like it appeared in these two <laughs> random movies. Um, and then the Thomas the Tank Engine recalled you to small parts and Sega and I IBM joined forces to create a Sega PC. Um, I have to say, out of all four of them, and this always, I think this always tends to happen with hot products. I, I feel like, um, the Sega and the IM, IBM, like joining forces to create a Sega PC, I feel like, especially where we are now with sort of the, the, uh, Xbox and the PlayStation both having, you know, PC size hard drives and, like you say, online capabilities and crossover potential with new Microsoft PCs and things. I do feel like that's that's very like prescient and relevant and interesting. But coupled with the Thomas the Tank Engine recall, I'm not sure if it... <laughs> Think of like, all the lives the that were saved by that recall happening. <laughs> all the innocent child lives. I know. I Yeah, but I don't like children. So, you know, I, I'm not necessarily <laughs> that interested in... No, I'm kidding. Well, think but, about um, all the lives that were lost because of it before the recall. <laughs> but do I, you know, while Paintball and Williams Gibson are nowhere near necessarily a as a world-changing event as the Sega and IBM joining forces together is, do the two of them together counteract that? That's my that's my big dilemma right now as a judge. Let me let me ask Mike this: How many units did they sell of this uh, monumental piece of technology? It's more. It's not so much that. It's more looking at it as a first step on a road to something. I actually, I, I don't know how, how many units they sold, but it, it didn't. It didn't end up doing well. But that could be, you know, it's it's a little too early. It's a two thousand dollar unit. What do you mean? It's it's too early. Like, are you holding out that they may sell more soon? <laughs> it's, it's finally making its way to U.S. To, I, U.S. I'm soil. Saying, in, in, no, no, in I, terms of first technological steps on the road to something, considering where we all live right now, technology-wise, um, I'm sorry, guys. I think I'm going to have to go May 1991 again. I'm just wow. going to. I have my own reasons wow. in terms of if, wow. ter terms of pop culture and technology <laughs> relevance. The Sega. You know how I know it's a bad choice because Mark's. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, Johnny well, Demonic. No. <laughs> but you see, I think that almost sided against you because you mentioned Gotcha and Johnny Mnemonic in your thing. I'm like, could I live without those two movies? <laughs> yeah, but see, you're focusing on the Johnny Mnemonic part, not the no, part not. that this no. is the father of cyberpunk. 
Dude, which... I very clearly stated that like, <laughs> put put together, Paintball and William Gibson are both extraordinarily relevant things that would go throughout the 80s and 90s and on, right? But in terms of taking that first step, uh, Sega really makes it with this particular product. And while this particular product may not have taken off, it leads us to where we are today. And that's why I think it's it's the winner. All right. All right, moving on. After school special, you're keeping control of the board. Where are we going? Mike, what do you think? Uh, should we knock news out? Oh, I think we have to. All right. I'll let you start this one. Oh, thank you, sir. Because on May 14th, 1991, we saw the world's largest burrito weighing over 1,100 pounds. <laughs> what? That was your news item and not your hot product? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's actually just, just a footnote. In, in a fantastic month, because really on May 1st, 1991, Nolan Ryan threw his seventh no-hitter. Ryan's seventh and final no-hitter was three more than any other pitcher. Those who were there say it was the most electrifying performance they had ever seen from him, going as far as to calling him untouchable. The 44-year-old didn't think he'd pitch a decent game that night, and the Texas Rangers staff say he walked into the stadium feeling very much his age. He ended up throwing 83 of his 122 pitches for strikes and only allowing two runners on who never got past first base. Ryan himself is quoted as saying this was the most overpowering no-hitter of his career. How old was he then? Was he 43 or 45? Uh, he was 44. He's 44 years old. He threw 122 pitches. Uh, That's retires probably... in 93. Where does his record stand now? Do we know? He's, oh, he's, got, the he's got the most no-hitters. Still. Still, dude, he's he's a freak of nature. Yeah. He's just nice. Okay. All right, Bobby Craft, over to you for your news offering. All right, May 6, nineteen ninety one, Time Magazine unveils the thriving cult of greed and power, an eight page article and cover story that pulls back the curtain on the religion of Scientology. Written by U.S. investigative journalist Richard Behar, it takes a highly critical look at the religion. After previously publishing an article on Scientology in Forbes. Bayar stated that he was investigated by attorneys and private investigators affiliated with the Church of Scientology. Topics in this Time article include founder L. Ron Hubbard, the development of the religion, its controversies throughout the years, and much more. Many consider this piece an instance in which the doors of Scientology were blown wide open, giving the public a look behind the scenes of what many now consider a global hoax akin to a pyramid scheme. So this was kind of the catalyst or the conduit to everybody kind of, you know, raising an eyebrow to the whole religion of Scientology. And uh, now, of course, we've got this everywhere. There's all kinds of documentaries and series devoted to trying to, you know, uncover what it is that people see in this uh, quote-unquote religion and why it's grown to the uh, size and heights it has. Yeah, they have their own goddamn TV channel now. Do they really? Yeah, the Scientology channel. Oh, is I it was... I was very disappointed at my home country uh, when Scientology tried to claim to be a religion in Germany, of all places. Germany went, nope, you are not a religion, you're a cult, and uh, you can certainly be here, but uh, you can't claim to be a religion or claim any tax benefits being a religion. Uh, the UK went, sure, come on in, be a religion, take more tax money off people. And uh, yeah, very sad and very angry at my yeah. uh, home country for that. You um, get your because- cola for free. Yeah, it's a load of old cult. Yeah, I'm not taking my religion from the same guy who gave me Battlefield Earth. Fuck that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
I watched that Leah Romini thing. It's so confusing. There's like levels. It's kind of interesting though. I did watch a couple episodes of it too. It's it, and it was kind of the similar story of you know them trying to uncover this stuff and researching, and then some dude like following them around trying to like figure out what they're doing and be like, no, you can't be here. You can't be like looking into this shit. Yeah, there was a, there was a fascinating one done by the BBC. Uh, I don't know when, possibly as I think it was as they became a religion in the UK, which I think happened about 10 years ago now. Um, and they did a first part of the documentary where he was trying to be very like fair and balanced and asking both Scientologists and people who have left the church and people who have never heard about it. Like he was interviewing everybody and trying to be fair and da, 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 da. And of course they were being very effusive and, and divisive and, uh, and then they did a follow up where he was like, remember my documentary about Scientology? This is what happened to me afterwards. And like all the insane shit that they tried to pull on him and all the stuff that went on, it was absolutely crazy. It's horrifying. It's on YouTube somewhere. I guarantee we'll get a copyright claim to block the video from Scientology now. Just because of that. I can see it. It's going to come. Fuck you, Tom Cruise. If it's not uh, WWE and Vince McMahon giving us copyright claims... It'll be Scientology. All right, Mark. I forget what you even have. All right. I'll start us off here for our news. Uh, Only days after an epic run of shows at Madison Square Garden with the Commodores, Bob Marley collapsed while jogging in Central Park and later received a grim diagnosis that he had a cancerous growth from an old soccer injury on his big toe, and it had metastasized and spread to Marley's brain, liver, and lungs. Less than eight months later, on May 11th, 1981, Bob Marley, the sole and international face of reggae music, died in a Miami, Florida hospital. He was only 36 years old. If I have to recount to you the accolades of Bob Marley, then you have more important things to do than listen to the show, so... It's, it's easy. If if we have to tell people who Bob Marley is, fuck off and stop listening. That's really what we should have just said. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. But it, it's okay. amazing how many people you got to tell that he died of cancer. A lot of people think he died of a drug overdose. Yeah, no. No, he has can- you know? cancer of the toe from playing soccer. Right. Yeah. Cancer yeah. of the toe that grew from his toe through his entire body. Right. That's scary. That's yeah. freaking really scary. That's probably what, like, while he was smoking pot, that's probably what stopped him realizing that the cancer had just gone up his entire body. He, he you know, probably just blinded him to the fact. Good for him. Well, who knows what they would have done then anyway in 1981. Yeah. <laughs> they, would, they would have looked at it and gone, your entire body is cancer. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Goodbye. You're going to die. Here, <laughs> smoke this. <laughs> <laughs> that's illegal. Yeah. Well, talk about going out on a high. All right. Well, I, I got mine. So let's All see right. if mine's any better. All right. So May 1st, 1985, tennis great and superstar at the time, Billie Jean King. She made a surprise admission that she had a lesbian love affair with a woman who was then suing her for lifetime support. Uh, basically, a gold digging biatch is what we would call it in 2019. <laughs> uh, Billie Jean King with her parents and then husband Larry King at her side. Not that Larry King uh, said she decided to make the announcement. That would have been a fun couple, though. She decided to make the announcement because she's always been honest and wanted to speak from her heart. Uh, Her side piece at the time, uh, Marilyn Barnett, she filed for a palimony suit and asked for the interest in King's 
Malibu Beach House and half the property that King had acquired during their relationship, which was in the early 70s, which happened to be during Billie Jean King's peak because she was number one tennis player in the world in the 60s and early 70s. Uh, but this is this is a bombshell at the time. I'm pretty sure people knew that Billie Jean King was a lesbian, but she was married for 19 years at the time of this announcement. Uh, and just they, they actually stayed together till 87, if you were wondering. And she started getting with her doubles partner, uh, Elena Kloss <laughs> at the time. And actually, I think she's still with Elena Kloss today uh, and well into her 70s. But if only Billie Jean King's lawyer had read the small print, it was actually a Malibu Beach House Barbie set <laughs> mm. that she well, had. He, and not her, her lawyer told her not to do this. Her lawyer said, do not talk to the public yeah. about this. Do not and give up the tiny little replicas of, you know, furniture <laughs> and milkshakes or whatever else that Barbie has. You'll, you'll never get them the, back. The, You'll never get them back. They're original. 1980s Malibu Beach House Bobby. It's, uh, Anyways, it's, it's, regardless it's, of the reasons behind the news conference, uh, Billie Jean King became the first lesbian sports figure to come out in public. And frankly, there were three gay guys that came out prior to this, but none of them were as prominent a name as Billie Jean King. But none of so. them were lesbians. <laughs> and that's true as well. But seriously, she was the first one to acknowledge her sexuality. So she did suffer a pretty major financial blow afterwards. She ended up winning that suit. So Barnett got nothing, but she did lose millions of dollars in endorsements and she ended up playing tennis way longer past her prime. And but, you know, at the same time, she got into doubles because of that. And she had her, uh, <laughs> she, lifetime yeah, when, partner, when, you, so. when you say she got into doubles, um, <laughs> I think we know what you mean. Yeah can be taken both ways scissoring so <laughs> i'm still stuck on the larry king thing man that's an 80s sitcom we missed out on can yes. you imagine that yes at home with the kings yeah wimbledon are you there wimbledon <laughs> it would have been great it would have been the kings billy jean larry and bernard <laughs> and jerry lawler oh yeah He's the next door neighbor, though, that nobody likes. Puppies! <laughs> Hello, darling. I'm home. Have you seen my suspenders? <laughs> Poughkeepsie. Are you there, Poughkeepsie? <laughs> Why is it my shoulders look like a gargoyle's shoulders? <laughs> Passaic, you're next. <laughs> so, uh, I'm ready to judge this round if everyone's uh, ready to listen. Let's do it. Uh, I'm just going to announce it. Uh, I'm going to go May 1981, and the reason lesbians next <laughs> no in in all, in all seriousness um very difficult to decide uh but uh bob marley's passing and um billy jean king first lesbian in sports i feel like that's a thing to celebrate i mean obviously nolan ryan that's another great sports story obviously unbeaten to this day which is fantastic but i think the one-two punch of bob marley and lesbians it hits me right in my sweet spot so i'm gonna go with that sorry as it often does as it often does and the mama luke's win with billy jean king dying and uh bob marley getting with some lesbians <laughs> <laughs> all right man crush you pick the next category well it doesn't matter we're in two point rounds so let's just do this for john cross Let's go to television. All righty. So here's mine. I'll, I'll begin this round off. A bit of a backdrop on how my pick transpired and what came of this whole thing. It's pretty interesting because there's 
a lot of moving parts to this whole thing. So NBC had a variety show at the time in 1980, actually from 72 through 81. It was called Midnight Special, and it ran for nine years. It was on Friday nights. It was a big show. They had like big musical acts like Kiss was on, Cher, like big acts, comedians, and it was all produced by Dick Ebersol. At the same time, you had Saturday Night Live that was going through a total rough patch. All the popular people from Saturday Night Live had left by 1980. And Lorne Michaels was looking to take a year off as a hiatus from the show and just to regroup and redo the whole thing. And NBC didn't want to take part of that. So Michaels left for Paramount. As a replacement, they put in his co-producer at the time, which is Gene Domanian. SNL went to total shit. They had like a minuscule budget, had terrible ratings. Some new cast member that was on there yelled fuck during a live TV event. And it's pretty easy to say, like, Domanian got shit canned in less than a year. So now this is where it gets interesting. So NBC wanted Dick Ebersol to take over SNL, which he did. But when he jumped ship to SNL, NBC, NBC decided to cancel Midnight Special because he was the driving force behind that show. So now there was nothing going on on Friday nights until May 15th, 1981. On May 15th, 1981, NBC trots out the likes of John Candy, Eugene Levy, Rick Moranis, Joe Flaherty, and a slew of other Canadians. That's because they added Second City TV to replace Midnight Special on Friday nights. And it's super rare for a Canadian show to transverse to American television and be successful, but they did. But the show, when they first took it on, it was called SETV Network 90 because it was now 90 minutes long. And a lot of people still think SETV is actually better than SNL. Uh, For NBC, it went on to win two Emmys in a couple short years, nominated 15 times. So that's what it is, SCTV. Nice. Excellent. One of my favorite shows. Yeah, I loved SCTV. I don't know, the Canadian brand of humor mixed with the American brand of humor. I thought it was just a really good melding of the two cultures. And it was different humor than you got on SNL. They always went for political humor or stuff based off pop culture, where SCTV was more society-based and characters that were more relatable. So. Let me uh, let me ask this. Does anybody know where SCTV went in their last season? Because NBC couldn't fit them in anymore because they wanted to take on music videos to take on MTV. So they had to move them somewhere. They tried to move them to Sunday nights, but it didn't work. Uh, they went. So they went to they a went cable to, station. They went to Cinemax. That's they, right. Wow. So that might be a trivia question on trivia night. Where did SCTV line up in their wind up in their final wow. season? So there you have the answer. If you're listening. And Dick Ebersol actually did have some good years with SNL, too. Just throw that out there. He was the one that just pretty much brought on Eddie Murphy and had those big years with Eddie Murphy. He didn't have, like, the best run. Probably wasn't as good as Lorne Michaels, but right. he had a decent yeah. run. And he stuck around NBC till like, fucking... Is he still alive? Dick Ebersol? Yeah. Apart from what you're talking about, I forget where he's most... Uh, famous for because I hear his name mentioned all the time in like various like uh, he's com- huge comedian. NBC. I think he might have been the NBC president for a while. Yeah, he was, and he was the partner for the original XFL as well. Yep, yep. And his his son was the one that did the AAF. Correct. And just that- completely fucked himself. Yep. <laughs> fucked the legacy. Way to go, dude. There you go. 
So why has NBC never put any of those SCTVs on Hulu? That's what they needed to have done. I mean, even if it was just the 81 to 83 run, that would still be worth watching. They did a best of in 88 that went straight to DVD. So maybe the rights are still owned by, what was it, Global Global did the Global did the first ones, the nineteen seventy six yeah. through to like nineteen eighty, and then CBC so maybe they picks it up. The rights back or something? Who knows? Yeah, well, it's weird because it kind of plays on Canadian television up until nineteen eighty one on two different networks, and then in nineteen eighty one it splits between CBC and NBC in the US, and then in its last year it split between Super Channel and Cinemax. Um, I don't know what Super Channel is. It might be a paid for thing. In I think that was, that's a Can- yeah, it's a Canadian cable television. Yep. Yeah, but um, yeah, only really only uh, Kids in the Hall and SCTV are really the only two kind of Canadian shows I can think of that have done that running on CBC and an American channel concurrently. And and obviously, Kids in the Hall started off on HBO and ended up on NBC. But. What about Degrassi? <laughs> Did that run on U.S. channels? Yeah. PBS. It did. That's right. <laughs> PBS. Yep. Those it was early on CBS? ones. PBS. Oh, PBS. Oh, right, yeah. right, right. But was it like was it running as like it was running in the U- in the in Canada, or did they just like pick it up later? I think on? it was syndicated. Yeah, it was oh, already okay. past. Yeah, it, yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah. It was okay. so bad by the time it made it to America. I remember watching it in middle school and being like, "What the fuck? Who wears hats like that?" <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, go ahead, Mark. What do you What do you got? All right, so May 1981, not the greatest month for television. Kind of hard to find stuff, but I did find something that's a little trivial and kind of interesting. Uh, Stand-up comedian appeared for the first time on uh, the uh, Johnny Carson show, and this guy, his first time on nationally syndicated TV, this is how he starts out his set, saying, hey, wow, good evening, boy, this is exciting for me. I'm so excited to be here. This is a really big thrill. And then he goes on to tell weather and fart jokes. Yeah, so not the greatest debut, or was it? This was uh, a comedian out of Massapequa, New York, named Jerry Seinfeld. Performs for the first time May 7th, 1981, on the Johnny Carson Show. Once uh, Jerry saw Johnny at the end of the show give him the OK symbol, Seinfeld then knew his career in uh, show business would take right off as he was invited back over and over again to appear on the show and his career took off from there and it all started for jerry seinfeld telling fart and weather jokes may 7th 1981 on the johnny carson show all right after school special over to you guys for your tv offerings i'll kick this one off uh may 3rd 1991 cbs marks the final broadcast the final episode of dallas The show debuted in 1978, lasted for 14 seasons, a total of 357 episodes during its initial run. Uh, Of course, I think we've discussed this on the show before. It was later revived by TNT uh, and aired from 2012 to 2014. Not as successful, obviously. The show would spawn multiple specials and a spinoff in Knott's Landing, and the final episode of the series garnered 33 million viewers and a 22 household rating, becoming the country's 14th most watched television series finale the final episode of dallas on cbs may 3rd 1991 solid mike's parents like that pick (laughs) mike's brother watched it too (laughs) when he was watching walker (laughs) (laughs) on uh, may 19th 1991 on nbc aired knight rider 2000 
Hasselhoff returns as Michael Knight in a future where handguns are banned and law enforcement is armed with non-lethal weapons and the prison system uses cryogenic suspension and a bunch of other future stuff that ended up not happening. Uh, Despite solid ratings, NBC did not move forward with a future series, which is probably for the best because they didn't even use the original Pontiac. Instead, they customized a 91 Dodge Stealth. And it was red, wasn't it? Red? Because all I remember about Knight Rider 2000 is it was released as like a a solo VHS. And I don't know whether they kind of bundled the pilot and a couple of other episodes together or something. But it was released sort of like a a TV movie in the UK uh, on VHS. That's all I remember. And it had a red car on the front, not a black one. At least they didn't use a Dodge Dynasty. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been hot. Well, they could have used the Dodge Dallas, but then they would have ended the series. (laughs) A maroon New Yorker. (laughs) All right. Let me just go ahead and judge this. Uh, Do we have any other facts about Knight Rider 2000? I kind of want to look it up quickly. (laughs) It was shit. Yeah, it wasn't good. (laughs) Of course it was shit. It was no no Baywatch Nights, I can tell you that much. (laughs) They fought vampires on Baywatch Nights, man. That's solid programming. Greatest TV shows of all time, and people just don't remember it. Um, no. Okay. So it was a, uh, it was just a film. They just made it as a film. It never went to series. Hmm. Uh, and yes, the car was red. Um, and, uh, it was just, it was a TV movie, so it still fits for TV, but yes, it, uh, it went straight to TV. It had Jimmy Doohan in it from, uh, from, uh, Star Trek. Um, so they really pulled out the big hitters and Mitch Pileggi, who would go on to, yes. uh, yeah. to be in the X Files. Yeah. Um, and even, even dragged back Edward Mulhair as Devin Miles. Uh, I did not realize that, uh, he came back. I knew Hasselhoff had come back, but I did not realize Mulhair got in on some of that Knight Rider 2000 money. Uh, good for him. Good didn't for him. Didn't last long. No, it didn't last. But, you know, look, they tried it. They did something different. It was good. Yeah, uh, literally very little known about it. But uh, anyway. <laughs> They've hidden everything. From They've me. hidden everything except Hasselhoff's big, silly face. It turns out it's run by Scientologists. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, a, this is another difficult one, right? Because uh, CBS screening the final episode of Dallas, 33 million people. Uh, that is big. But... Is it as big as the double punch of SCTV and Jerry Seinfeld? That's the question. That's the question that I peruse right now. Is it as big as the the one-two punch of SCTV and Jerry Seinfeld? If I'm 100% honest, SCTV has not, while, while all of the actors have gone on to be pop-culturally relevant, I, don't, I still feel like SCTV is a cult show. I, I'm not sure that many people know where Candy and Levy and all those people came from. If I'm 100% honest, we all know, but but do you... But they did inject them into the American market by doing that, because if they stayed in Canada, who knows? Yeah, but that's okay, because this is a cult show, so... Right. (laughs) No, no, I understand, I understand. I'm just trying to look at it. Like, to me, SCTV and Jerry Seinfeld being a comedy nerd, that's like two monumental things. But I have to try and be objective. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to look at it from a objective point of view but uh oh god let's make it interesting let's stay with uh the mamelukes take this one mm. uh sctv and jerry seinfeld two rounds each 
Well, it doesn't even matter because now we go to the last round. Winner take all. Winner takes all. All to play for in this last round. Will movies of 1981 or movies of 1991 take the gold? This is where it's fun for me because I have no idea what they picked. I don't look at what they do. So I really don't know what's going to happen here. I know what we have. I don't know what they have. Do you want, do we want to defer or should we just go? Technically, Mike could pull out Knight Rider 2000 again for the movies. <laughs> I hope he try, does. I encourage try, it. <laughs> I encourage try, try and throw it out there twice. Go on. Let's just slip Michael Knight in there somehow. You know what, Man Crush? I think you're right. I think we have to defer. All right. Let's defer to the 90s to go first. After school special. You guys are up. Take it away, Mike. Sure. Knight Rider 2000. How'd Spin you know? that shit. <laughs> All right, on May 24th, 1991, saw the release of Backdraft in American movie theaters, directed by Ron Howard and starring Kurt Russell, William Baldwin, Don, Donald Sutherland, and Robert De Niro. The story follows Chicago firefighters and a serial arsonist. The film went on to gross over $150 million worldwide, was nominated for three Academy Awards, praised for its special effects, and even had an attraction at the Universal Studios Hollywood that operated until 2010. In this edge-of-your-seat thriller, we learn one thing about fire. In an instant, it can create a hero or cover a secret. <laughs> did you know there's a sequel out to that? Yeah. Did it come out yet? It's this year. It came out this last week, I think. Is it called uh, Further Backdraft? L look at the timing on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Suther Sutherland is in it. Backdraft 2, Electric Boogaloo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it straight to VOD or did it get released in the theaters? I think it's straight to VOD. Yeah. It did not get a theatrical release. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same cast still fighting fires. Well, uh, Sutherland shows up in it, so that's got to be interesting. And, and and by interesting, I mean not really. <laughs> Which Baldwin was it? Not Billy. It was uh, was it? no, it was William. William. Yeah, it William is Billy. Uh, it's Billy, and he didn't yeah, age well. He did not it's not Alec, that. and it's not the crazy Christian one. So he was on Poop Culture with us. You talking about Daniel? No, I'm talking Steven. about Stephen. Oh, Stephen. Daniel's badass. Daniel was in Homicide Life on the Street. Hell yeah, I he like was in Daniel. Vampires. Right. Yeah. He was. Uh, it's just he's not Stephen, who did a lot of softcore thrillers with Patsy Kensett in the '90s, only to go on and become some mad right-wing religious nutcase. And fled. You can't forget fled. And he had a threesome with Josh Charles. True, and uh, Lara Flynn Boyle. Yeah. And he's Justin Bieber's father-in-law. That's a 90 sentence right there. Stephen Baldwin had a threesome with Josh Charles and Lara Flynn Boyle, only in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Bo. Uh, here's what I got. Released May 17th, 1991, starring Bill Murray, Richard Dreyfus, Julie Haggerty. We're talking What About Bob, which as a child was one of my favorite movies. Uh, budget of $35 million, raking in a total of $63.7 million. Uh, but if you add in the um, video rentals, $92 million of a haul overall. What did you say? $35 million budget? Yep. Holy, that's the 90s right there. Right. Damn. That's that's some uh, uh, Coke money. That's, that's why Superman Bill didn't Murray. get made right there. <laughs> that's Bill Murray's Coke budget right Damn. there. So you got a you got a pretty well liked movie. 
I love What About Bob? Are you kidding me? Baby steps Baby to steps. four o'clock. Baby steps to four o'clock. <laughs> the interesting thing about this is, uh, I, I didn't know this until I was researching it, but Richard Dreyfuss and Bill Murray evidently did not like each other. Uh, no. we're, we're not fans of each other on that set, or, or I don't know if they've mended fences since, but uh, many argue that that kind of made their on-screen chemistry really pop, made it even yeah. better. Yeah. So the fact Bob's that they- not gone! Bob's never gone. <laughs> See, I, I absolutely cannot stand that movie. I oh, really? I love Bill Murray. Don't get me wrong. Richard Dreyfus fucking ruins that movie for me. I can't stand him in that movie. Well, it was supposed to be Woody Allen at one point. Was it really supposed to be Woody Allen? Yeah, I guess he was in uh, consideration for that role at one point. Great. Good job they didn't do that. Then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Who would have played the daughter? <laughs> <laughs> A young Asian girl, probably. One of the, one of the uh, only other films I can think of, or prominent films that I can think of, to star Julie Haggerty from the Airplane franchise. That's right. Yeah. Looking good, covered in moss on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> he can't go, it's raining. He can wear my slicker! <laughs> right, next. Let's go. <laughs> All right. I'll start this one off, man crush. All right, go ahead. All right, a former summer camp caretaker is horribly burned from a prank gone wrong as he lurks around an upstate New York summer camp bent on killing the teenagers responsible for his disfigurement in... Mask! (laughs) (laughs) No, in The Burning, released in theaters May 8th, 1981. Now, this film actually marks the very first Miramax film, as well as the film debut of Jason Alexander and Holly Hunter... Also stars Lear Ayers of Bloodsport and Eyes fame. And Fisher Stevens, who, contradictory to popular belief, is not a man from India. (laughs) (laughs) Who would have thought? Yeah. Yeah. And did not build a talking robot. Right. And it also starred the one actor that Hollywood thought was every kid in the 1980s, the incomparable Brian Backer. Uh, Tom Savini, it was one of his FX masterpieces, as he really pushed the bounds of practical effects making. A little side note to this, he turned down a role on another movie to work on this movie because he loved the script so much. Uh, The script for The Burning. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this movie. It's a classic. I had never seen the full film. And, but I do remember watching a video that I rented, I swear it was every week when I was a kid, called Scream Greats with Tom Savini, and it showed how he did all these awesome effects. Some of the effects that he showed that blew me away was from this movie called The Burning. I had never seen it in any of my local VHS stores. Because of this show, I was able to catch up with this great movie, and being a Tom Savini fan, I'm glad I didn't miss this one. All right, Man Crush, over to you. All right. So again, on this, this is where doing research actually makes sense on this because I don't know, John might bring this up, but the movie I'm about to pick, it has different release dates all over the internet. So I had to go back to old newspapers. If you do a search on IMDb, it tells you April 30th, 81. However, this was actually released on Friday, May 1st, 1981. Uh, the movie in question made roughly $22 million in the box office. It's about $64 million in 2019 on a $1 million budget, uh, which are pretty impressive numbers. That budget probably would have been a little higher if Tom Savini actually took the job on this one, uh, but decided to do the burning instead. They did offer it to him. Uh, that being said, our two picks, they're, they're perfect together. Uh, it's a snapshot of what was going on in 1981. 
the movie we're going to pick, it's a horror slasher pick, just like Mark's. There's a total overabundance of these films for like a few years. Everyone was trying to cash in on the genre. And there were a couple more horror movies that were released. Like every month, there was like four or five horror movies, which you would definitely wouldn't get in 2019. And if I had a gun to my head, I'd go on record. I'd probably say that the period between 78 and 82 is probably the most popular in that genre. Is that fairly accurate to say, John? What, what did you say? 78 for to 82? 78 to 82 for horror slasher flicks, like just coming um, out in mass droves. Yeah, I mean, people tend to like push it that early. A lot of people say that slashers kind of start to overstay their welcome come like 83. I personally think there are still great slashers as late as like 86. So I'm alone in that, but I'm a big slasher fan. So, um, and it only dies down for a minute before they start rebooting it in the very early 90s yeah. with the likes of Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer and stuff. So it, it doesn't, it's not as, they're not, uh, they don't disappear as much as people think, especially when you start counting the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, the Halloween sequels, the Friday sequels, they go throughout the 80s. So. Right. Just but that four-year period, it was That four-year period is where they're trotting yeah. them out every single week. And they're all, more, more or less, they're all, while working to a formula, they're all different. They're not sequels or... Right. Yeah. All right. So let me get back to my pick here. I'm picking this one. It, this is from the Man Crush upbringing collection which we've talked about before on the show <laughs> since it was one of the rca discs that i frequent frequently digested from the ages of seven on up and that movie is friday the 13th part two. Oh, i was wondering if you were talking about friday the 13th part two or happy birthday to me i was, was going to go with happy birthday to me at first but the reason i went with this this is the first feature for jason Voorhees. Because, of course, spoiler, it is. if you watch yes. the first one, it's his mom doing the kills. So now you get introduced Jason Voorhees, who goes on you know, his killing spree. And then he's with the franchise for 11 more movies. Although um, in A New Beginning, Roy Burns is the killer. So that's the only one where he's not the killer besides the first. Uh, and then the, the franchise as a whole is 12 movies. They made roughly a half billion dollars. There's a body count of 200. Jason snags about 150 on his own. And then even though this is his first appearance, he still did get 10 kills, which is his second only to a new beginning, I guess, because he wasn't the killer in that one. But yeah, Friday the 13th part two. And I think it's cool because Mark's got the burning, which Savini didn't take uh, Friday the 13th part two to do, to the, do burning. the burning. Yeah, Savini doesn't come back to the uh, Friday series until part four, where he was promised he could kill Jason off. Right. Good luck with that, Savini. Well, he did it for <laughs> one. Six or seven sequels later, you know. He got one whole dead uh, franchise movie. But yeah, that's Yeah, it. I mean, the fourth one is the, the fourth one's probably the, the best of the, oh, of the, hands down. Of the yeah, later yeah. sequels. But yeah, the fact that in, in May 1981, you get Graduation Day, Happy Birthday to Me, Friday the 13th, Part 2, uh, Dead and Buried, and The Burning, and Possession all come out in that month. That's insane. <laughs> that is an insane lineup of horror. That is like... I would never be out of the theater. That would, I would just be, I would be, uh, uh, you know, um, Pee Wee Hermaning it, just sitting in the, the, the <laughs> cinema, just, just ecstatic. That is right. That is my sweet spot. That is right up my alley. A bit of, uh, slasher movies. However, gentlemen, the Mama Lukes, 
I love that you pick slasher films. I'm a big fan of them. They are probably my favorite uh, horror subgenre. But guys, no escape from New York. What gives? Because it, it didn't come out then. It came out in September. And we we actually okay. covered that on an episode already. Ah, is that true? Because yes. everywhere I'm looking. Uh, I, I had to double May. check again, but it was not out. I actually went back to the old newspapers. It was not out in May. They were talking about it ah. coming out, but it was not out yet. That's that happens weird. a lot. I don't understand why the dates are all over the place on the internet. Well, I mean, it may have been that something like Escape from New York got like a L.A. premiere or a New York premiere slightly earlier. Um, like very often those kind of movies do that. And then because back in the day, movies didn't come out, even in the 80s, movies didn't come out nationally all on one day. They kind of staggered them across they didn't even do what they do now where they like an independent movie will come out in LA and New York and then see how it does. And then maybe it will filter into other territories. Very often movies were still being carried from state to state to state to state for, for years. Right. Uh, and yeah, you're right. I mean, even IMDb has the opening weekend in the USA is July. So maybe it was right, July. I'm wrong on that. September. Um, I, I'm, I'm wrong on that or rather movie web is wrong on that. But, uh, so maybe they're wrong on the other ones as well. I don't know. But Friday the 13th, part two in the burning. My goodness. And let's have a look at May 1991. Well, uh, again, as long as these dates are correct, we have a plethora. We have Backdraft. We have Thelma and Louise. We have What About Bob? We have Soap Dish, in which uh, Iron Man uh, convinces uh, Whoopi Goldberg uh, to polish his statue um that's a whole joke no one else will get uh you have hudson hawk <laughs> hudson hawk which is by far the best bruce willis film to have ever been released after after die hard and uh but my personal favorite from may of 1991 of course it's everyone's uh favorite bosworth brian bosworth in stone cold yes. who doesn't love yeah. that movie who doesn't love a bit of uh blonde uh, mohawk mullet yeah, yeah and if you're gonna have a biker gang get hendrickson to be your villain it's always good what's Work the other van dude Damme. what's the other guy in that movie i'm sure you know his name the other bad guy who plays like the crazy dude by the way it's directed by craig R. baxley who also made action jackson and uh also would go on to direct many of the a-team episodes as well the guy you are talking about the third lead in stone cold is william Forsythe. yes ah bill Forsythe yeah. from cloak and dagger yeah, who's still playing some uh, great heavies to this day. Some great sleazy heavies. But you can't quite beat the Boz's mullet. Uh, so you could have gone with the Boz. And, uh, He's a pet iguana. He does in that movie, definitely. Um, you have Mannequin on the move. That's the Mannequin sequel. The sequel everyone didn't ask for and still got. But you got Christy Swanson. Hell yes, yeah. indeed. Uh, you've got Curse 3 Blood Sacrifice because apparently there was three of those movies <laughs> uh, has anyone even seen Curse 1 that's what I want to know um, you've got the John Stamos hit Born to Ride my goodness May 1991 what a plethora of, of random B-movie madness uh, who doesn't love this um, not much else Cthulhu Mansion um, based on an H.P. Lovecraft story of course but Outside of that, um, The Hitman was Chuck Norris's release that month. And a very weird Jeff Goldblum, Bob Hoskins movie called The Favor, The Watch, and The Very Big Fish uh, came out that month as well, apparently. Uh, but let's see. Does Backdraft and What About Bob trump 
two massive slasher, uh, you know, quintessential slashers. Um, while The Burning never really spawned a sequel as such, it is a renowned slasher of the period. It does have some prime Savini. It is a shame that um, both fran- both films, uh, Friday the 13th is notoriously the most edited of any slasher franchise. Almost all other slashers got away with far more bloodletting than the Friday the 13th series ever did because the um, MPAA, for some reason, just had it in for that franchise. If you watch other slashers of the day that they didn't care so much about, you can lop heads off and have blood spurting out of arteries and fingernails and remove limbs and pull people in half and all the rest of it. No one bats an eyelid, but in the Friday the 13th, Jason just has to nick someone with a machete, and the MPA were all over it. Uh, the Burning also got many cuts, but when you've actually finally seen the uncut version, it is a joy to behold, especially the uh, renowned uh, boat sequence with oh, the uh, fingers great. being cut off with yep. the uh, shears. Yeah, the raft Tremendous. sequence. I just showed that to my wife right before we were recording. Those effects still hold up after all these Definitely. years. It's amazing. Hands down, hands down. Well, literally, hands down because the fingers <laughs> came off. Um, but does it be backdraft from what about Bob? My God, this is a difficult one, guys. This is a difficult one. This is a difficult one. Oh, and it determines who wins this round. Let's talk know. about who got legs, man. Friday the 13th, 12 <sighs> movies. No, no, true, true. I get it. I when, get it. When and also, think... Backdraft is not as good as everyone remembers it. I'm just going to go on a record, despite the cast, because the cast is incredible backdraft is not a fun movie to watch it's just not a good movie to watch donald sutherland is like the best thing in it everything else is awful uh, the cast is great but like in general it's a very boring homoerotic uh people <laughs> slapping each other on the back there's no real like plot to it you know what i mean it's not like they're trying to chase down someone or yeah i watched it about a year ago and it was the first time i had watched it since oh geez since i was a kid and it doesn't hold up like it that's it doesn't portray real firefighting at all it's so right. over the top fictionalized also if you were if you're going to say let's watch one fi- uh, a firefighter movie this or roxanne you're going to watch roxanne every every time oh of course yeah um so okay i've talked myself out of backdraft but i do love what about bob i do love what about bob i do love what about bob Ah, to hell with it. I'm sorry, guys. I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to go. Mama Luke's 1981, The Burning Friday the 13th, Part 2. As Man Crush so rightly pointed out, it does spawn several sequels. It invents uh, Jason as the antagonist for the rest of the franchise. Um, It is an awesomely good look with the bag over the head. He does kill a guy in a wheelchair, which is also uh, definitely required in any good slasher film. That guy was Uh, about to get laid, too. Yeah. Yeah. That girl was into him. They were going to fuck. Jason Voorhees, psychopath, mass murderer, cock blocker. Cock blocker, <laughs> indeed. Um, and I think it's 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 more or it less before mother. the franchise. It's more or less. Well, I think the first four of the franchise are pretty solid. Five is the one where they really take a misstep. So I'm going to go, sorry, uh, um, after school special. What about Bob? That's right in my sweet spot. And if I could give you half a point, I would. But um, The Burning and Friday the 13th Part 2 can't really beat that as a double bill, guys. So uh, 1981. Sorry for such the long deliberation, but congratulations the Mama Lukes. Just I'm good with it. it at the post. Wow. That was one of the closer tag team battles we've ever had here on Dueling Decades. So. When you said backdraft 
or what, what? No, yeah, that was the first thing you said, right? Back yeah. after the first pick, yeah. I was like, "Fuck, we're in trouble." Yeah, you see, weirdly enough, and and I I don't know whether I would, but I think had you said Thelma Louise and what about Bob, I almost would have gone for the nineties, just because not because I'm a, as as big a fan of Thelma Louise, but um, because I think culturally it's had legs. Like culturally, it's it's more of a relevant movie, I think. But I'll I'll, yeah. I'll throw out this point. You already gave us the point, but yes, you've 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 won it. I'm not changing it. With Jason Voorhees, like you talk about iconic horror figures, we yes. had the uh, would we call that that showdown? We had like a Halloween showdown last October, and Jason took it all the way to the finals, beating all the other horror icons before he ended up losing to Ash. Actually, no. Did he lose to Freddy Krueger? He, he lost, lost to Freddy because it came yeah. down to Freddy versus Ash. Yeah, that was yeah. our first annual tournament of terror. Yeah, and Ash took it quite rightly. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it, it's funny. Um, Halloween will, all, out of the three big ones, Halloween will always be my favorite franchise, sure. but only up until seven. Everything up to seven fucking sucks balls. But everything, including the new one, the new one, it's terrible. It's such a bad movie. Don't believe the lies about that movie. But uh, Halloween will always have a special place in my heart because of Donald Pleasance. But I have watched probably the Friday the 13th movies more than any other franchise. And I covered them extensively for another podcast, the Profondo Cinema podcast, where we watched all of them, including the uh, remake, um, and rated them and talked about them and came up with trivia and everything else. So it's, it's a favorite of mine. I own all of them multiple times. All right, so once again, the Mamelukes pull out a victory, although this was one of the closest battles we've had here on our show. So like we've said before, pay attention to not only the current episodes, but some of the back episodes. We're going to be having a trivia night soon, and all the questions will be based on the episodes of Dueling Decades. Play along with us. You can win some prizes. That's right. We got some prizes from toink.com. That's T-O-Y-N-K.com. If you go there and use a promo code, decades you'll get a percentage off and i'm not sure if it's i think it's 10 percent off that's something so go there check that out what does toink sell what does toink do no they got a bunch of cool stuff they sent us some things for prizes already uh they're all relevant to the 80s and 90s so it'll be cool to package that stuff together with uh, some dvds and stuff all right so if you've missed any of our past episodes you can always go over on our website duelingdecades.com and listen to all the past episodes there you can subscribe on Castbox and of course on itunes and next week right here on dueling decades our very own john cross is going to be entering the competition as he faces off against a mystery opponent that has never competed on our show so he's going to try his hand for the first time at our game against an unknown opponent. Yeah, buy my t-shirt, you nubbin. <laughs> All right, Duelers, we're going to end this episode right here. Thanks for listening to our show. We'll bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everybody. Infirmary Media.